is the daily lectionary comment for August the 8th. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, where David spares Saul's life and what happens after that. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Christ as our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, first thing we need to know about this is uh, we have skipped three chapters since our last devotion. And so if you want to go back and read chapters 21, 22, and 23, uh, there's some interesting development and important development about Saul and what kind of a man he is. Uh, the most important story, I'll tell you briefly, is that while David was on the run and Saul was chasing him, uh, David and his men came upon a little town of, of, of Nob. Uh, there was a, a group of priests there. These priests were helping with ministering at the tabernacle. And David and his men were very hungry and needed food. And the priests did not have food to give him except what is called the bread of the presence. This was bread that in the book of Leviticus, uh, the, the priests were to place 12 large loaves of bread before uh, in the tabernacle that would stay there all week. And then they would be replaced every week and the priests would eat uh, the holy bread after it had been in the tabernacle. Uh, the priests had nothing else to give to David and his men uh, so they went ahead and gave him the uh, the bread of the presence, and David and his men left. Now, the priests knew full well David was on the run, and this was a dangerous thing to do. What we learn later is that Saul himself learns of this and comes on the, this little town of Nob. He rounds up the priests, and he kills them all. Now, that ought to tell you something about how things are spiraling downhill for Saul. And yet we're going to see that there's, there's aspects of Saul that are just really uh, extraordinary in terms of talking about his emotional and mental instability. Well, here we have an example of it in our, in our um, devotion today. We also have a, a very stark contrast between the ruthlessness of Saul and the care that David takes with Saul, but more importantly, with the Lord. This famous story, of course, David and his men are hiding in a cave, and Saul, with 3,000 of his soldiers, are passing by. And Saul uh, needs to relieve himself, and so he goes into the cave for this purpose. And he's got a cloak that he sets aside. And uh, anyway, uh, while he's in there doing what he needs to do, uh, David and his men realize that this is checkmate. The, the, the Lord has delivered Saul directly into David's hands. Uh, and the deed is done. All all needs to happen is David just goes up and strikes Saul, and, and it's, it's all over. David refuses to do this. He does go up, and he tears a piece of cloth from the cloak that Saul had with him uh, as evidence that he had been there. But he does not strike Saul, and he forbids any of his men to strike Saul. So Saul finishes with his business and leaves, rejoins his men, and as they're riding off, Saul, uh, David steps out of the cave and yells after Saul. And of course, it becomes immediately apparent that David had been in that cave, that Saul was just there. And David shows him the piece of the cloth that he had cut from his cloak. And right away, Saul realizes that David could have killed him in an instant. He was utterly powerless to stop it and didn't even know he was in danger. And Saul responds by weeping. And David professes his innocence and uses the fact that he did not strike Saul dead right then and there as evidence that he does not wish Saul harm. Now, what's interesting is this. 
David knows that he is going to secede Saul because Samuel's already anointed him as the next king. Saul believes that David is going to uh, secede him. Jonathan believes that David is going to secede him. But in those days, there was just no way for a king to step down. That didn't happen. And David is not going to take matters in his own hands in the way that ancient Near Eastern kings normally would. When one dynasty is going to replace another, the way that happens is through an assassination and then a purging. And David simply won't do it. That David is going to allow Saul, the rightful king, in terms of the law uh, of, um, uh, of Israel, to remain in power until the Lord himself removes him. And he will not lift up his hands against the Lord's anointed, even if the Lord's anointed is evil, and even if he knows that in the long run, uh, David is to be the new king. David is going to patiently wait and for that, uh, for that day. And that says a lot about David and his understanding and devotion to God, that he will allow God to handle things and not take matters into his own hands. Now, Saul here, in a very interesting moment, asks David to promise not to destroy his family outright once he has become king. And David swears that when he is king, he will not cut off all of Saul's family. Now, this is interesting because, in fact, Saul's family is going to be cut off. They're all going to be killed. There's going to be one that's going to be left. But what will be interesting is when we see how this happens, that, in fact, David didn't do it, but it did happen. So the Lord cleared the way for David to become the king, and all Saul's descendants will be killed uh, for this reason and for that reason. But David himself will keep this oath that he made. Okay, so that brings us up to date, 1 Samuel chapter 24. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Paul is very concerned as he writes to the Corinthians. The Corinthians are Greeks, and the Greeks have always been very enamored with wisdom. Plato, Socrates, uh, Aristotle, and all the rest, these are Greeks. And the Greeks surely love their wisdom and have a very high view of the capacity of good, sound thinking to find, to seek out, and find, and to know the truth. Paul, on the other hand, is very, very skeptical about that and does not see the word of God as a kind of wisdom like that. In other words, as though the Bible were something like, uh, you know, Aristotle's writings where we sit and we sit at the feet of great men who teach us great thoughts. Paul is going to develop in this chapter the very different nature of the power of the word of God. And the power of the word of God is not that it is wisdom in the sense that philosophers love wisdom. It is wisdom in a different sense. It is power in the different sense. That's why he says uh, in verse five, uh, well, in verse four, he says, my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The active ingredient in the word of God is the Holy Spirit. It's not that these words are so very persuasive or so very eloquent, like they're, they're, they're more eloquent than Shakespeare. Um, they're more filled with, with a logical truth 
and persuasiveness than, than Plato and Aristotle. It's not that. What makes the Word of God unique and powerful is the Holy Spirit that always comes with these words. And that's why he says in verse 6, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So there is a kind of wisdom that we receive uh, in the Word of God. Actually, uh, if you go back to verse uh, verse 30 of chapter 1, it says, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Okay, The Word of God brings us Christ, and Christ is our wisdom. A, 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 a Jew is going to be offended by that because they, they want to see many, many miracles in order to prove this, and they do not see in Jesus their Christ and their Lord. And the Greeks are going to think that this is stupid. This uh, wandering itinerant rabbi is not wisdom, and the Bible is not wisdom. But for Paul, the, the true power of the Scripture is that it brings us Christ through the Holy Spirit, and Christ is our wisdom. Verse 10 also says, these things that are revealed to us, it says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Verse 9 says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. He's citing Isaiah there. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So there is wisdom. It is a hidden wisdom. But by hidden, it doesn't mean that we still don't know it. It means that it's hidden except for those who receive the Holy Spirit through the Word. Verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is unable to understand them. And here's the basic point that we need to understand. A natural human being is a sinful and corrupt human being. Even a very wise and prudent person, even a very decent person, is still corrupt and cut off from God if left to their own selves. None of us can know God. None of us can come to God without the Holy Spirit. I cannot believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit calls me by the gospel, the catechism says. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here that for a natural, normal human being, unaided by the Holy Spirit, all these things are foolishness. It's not that he doesn't get them. He can't get them. He'll never be able to understand Christ as our wisdom or the true power of the Word of God. He will not be able to believe in the sense of trusting these things. And that's what faith uh, is calling us to, not just to believe that these things are true, but to entrust ourselves to them. It's just not possible without the Holy Spirit. And that's the key thing telling us in this passage that the wisdom and the power of God that's delivered through the word is because of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes these words different. And that is what is necessary to overcome the natural resistance of a human being, the incompatibility of the human mind and the sinful human being to, to what God is doing. But the Holy Spirit working through the word of God overcomes that. And this is an absolutely beautiful passage that speaks about the unique power of the Word of God to make believers out of unbelievers and to make disciples out of the natural man.